0: straight talk from israel you're listening to israel news talk radio news opinion and more you're listening to israel news talk radio you're listening to the jay shapiro show (coughs)
1: Hello again, this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. Living in a democracy is a good thing, but even good things can sometimes reach a point where there are too much of it. Too much democracy is, believe it or not, as strange as it sounds, is not a good thing. Israel is about to enter its fifth election in three years. That's a lot of democracy. With another election approaching, what happens is that the government is unable to enact policies to improve the lives of the average Israeli because we are now in an election mode. And what you hear is a lot of propaganda, a lot of which is shallow, populistic, and personal, instead of being ideological, responsible, and inclusive. So the government was, will be unable for months to really pass uh, bills and policies that are good for the people. Not only is a stable Israeli government needed in order to save the democracy, but the trust of the Israeli people in the government will only deteriorate if this trend continues. It'll be more difficult to separate what's really happening, the facts on the ground, from the political rhetoric, which can be pretty nasty and in addition there's something very important constant elections usually results in much lower voter turnout it's not as if israelis face barriers when voting unlike the united states israel gives old israelis a day off on election day in order to encourage them to go out and vote however As election days become as frequent as they do in Israel, uh, for example, the first three elections in the past three years yielded the same results. What's happened is that the average Israeli is losing hope in democracy. The result is a lower voter turnout each time. In the latest round of elections in March last year, 2021, the Central Election Committee recorded the lowest voter turnout since 2009. The lowest voter turnout in 13 years. Because many Israelis feel an apathy and they choose not to vote. Now, the truth of the matter is, the functioning of any democracy relies on the vote of its citizens. Now, what's happened in Israel is just the opposite. Reports indicate that the past four elections have cost Israel 14.8 billion uh, uh, shekels, which is roughly 4.2 billion U.S. dollars. Now, Israel is trying to recover from the economic damage incurred from the COVID-19 pandemic. So what's happened is that Israel's continuous spending on elections results in a loss of faith because the people are being hit economically at the same time. Just recently, the former prime minister, Naftali Bennett, warned Israel's enemies that Israel will not tolerate any attacks in the south part of Israel, even though the government here is unstable. Israel's never-ending election cycle is not a win for democracy. It's a win for Israel's enemies. We are a tiny country surrounded by terrorist organizations like Hamas and like Hezbollah, so a stable government is not only crucial for the continuation of a democracy, but also for Israel's national security. There's talk now about Iran gaining nuclear capabilities, and it looks like this is going to happen. And Iran continues at the same time, in parallel, to be the largest sponsor of terrorism. So obviously, a strong and stable Israeli government is required in order to thwart any potential attack. None. The truth of the matter is, as the fifth election approaches, Israel's legitimacy as a reliable and functional democracy is on the line. The question is, will Israeli politicians step up and put their egos on the side, or will they continue toying with the lives of millions of Israelis who need a stable government now probably more than ever? That is the situation now, and the politicians seem to be willing to ignore the facts on the ground. So Israel is declining as a functioning democracy, and it's falling more and more into the hands of not statesmen, but politicians. And that is not good for the future. I want to switch gears now and go on to a different topic, and that is the position of Jews in the war between Russia and Ukraine. Historically, Jews have come under threat during conflicts and national emergencies, even those that have nothing to do with the Jews themselves. This has been the case in Europe, For more than a thousand years, Jews were often singled out during periods like the Crusades, the bubonic plague, and the Inquisition. Now, the war in Ukraine has revealed how Jews can be targeted or used by both sides. Moscow has constantly sought the claim that Ukraine is a Nazi country abusing the memory of the Holocaust as part of its conflict now. On the other hand, Ukraine, Jews have found themselves in a very complex situation because there are adherents of the far right who hold anti-Semitic views or downplay the role of some Ukrainians in the Holocaust. Keep in mind that in the Second World War, the Ukrainians were primarily sympathetic to the Germans. Many Ukrainians served as guards in concentration camps, and anti-Semitism has a long history in Ukraine. At the same time, Ukraine has often slammed Israel during the present conflict for not doing enough to help Ukraine. Jews constitute a small minority in Russia, but they have figured prominently in Russian history. Jews suffered in pogroms in the early 1900s. They suffered during Stalin's purges. They suffered during the Cold War and as victims of stereotypes after the Iron Curtain fell. At each juncture, however, Jews have also thrived and played an important role in all spheres of society. When the Russian Revolution occurred back at the time of the First World War, many Jews were active in high positions. The Jewish community in Russia has grown in recent decades after mass migration in the 1990s. Now, so the current war has led to concerns about their future. During the beginning of the conflict, there were concerns for the Jewish community and thousands of Russians, Jews and non-Jews, who could get out got out. The uh, there's, there's a fear of not being able to leave Russia if things get worse now. the uh, Israel has competent de- diplomats who can help resolve the situation. So Israel involved. The state of Israel has a responsibility to be vigilant against any attempts to politicize the Jewish community in Russia during this time of crisis. Right now, Israel and Russia have good relations and, for example, uh, the Russians um, are in Syria and uh, Israel has relations, uh, positive relations with the Russians to make sure that when Israel attacks Syria that no Russians are involved. So uh, the uh, the situation of the uh, Jews in Russia, the Jews in Ukraine, and the relationship between Israel and Russia, and the relationship between Israel and Ukraine, are extremely complicated, not only politically. But because of the state of Israel's feeling that it is responsible for the Jews living in those areas. So the war in Ukraine. Russia versus the Ukraine really has an effect upon the Israel Israeli government that really has to walk very carefully and see to it that the Jewish communities in both those countries are safe. Our responsibility as the Jewish nation, our responsibility is toward Jews all over the world. So there's a very complicated situation situation going on now in the Russian-Ukrainian war, and the best we can do as, as observers here is just to keep an eye on it and hope that things work out for the Jewish communities. Now I want to go over to an entirely different topic. Over the past 12 months, the Israeli economy has grown by 9.5 percent which is the highest rate among the world's 42 leading economies, and a good several rungs about China's 4.8. The United States' uh, growth is um, 3.5%, and euro is uh, 5.4%, and as I said, the Israeli economy has grown by 9, 9.5%. Almost double other countries. Unemployment in Israel is 3.7%, which is roughly the same as in the United States. And it's far lower than euro, which is 68 And China, 5.9%. The budget balance here in Israel has shifted from deficit to surplus. Uh, only other four other economies in the world have shown that in the last year and in the debt Debt markets, where yields go down, the more a borrower is financially healthy, Israel's 10-year bond rate stood last month at 2.8%, lower than America, Canada, Australia, Singapore, and Korea. So the economy is not just fine here in Israel now, even with the crazy governments, but the economy is robust. And in fact, according to the numbers, one of the most energetic and balanced in the world. So is it perfect? No, nothing's perfect. Prices are indeed rising. However, a similar glance in any chart shows the problem is not Israeli, because in the United States, for example, consumer prices rose this year by 8.6%, in the euro area by 8.1%, in Britain by 9.1%. Could be one of the reasons why the, the British Prime Minister had to quit. In Israel, prices rose over that period by a little over 4%, which is the sixth lowest place among the world's significant economies. So, is 4.1 inflation good? It isn't. But did Israelis cause it? No, they didn't. It's a global problem caused by energy and grain shortages stemming from the Russia-Ukrainian War and also the pandemic. It, it uh, the, the pandemic is responsible for the disruption of global supply chains. This means that the only player that can treat one aspect of the situation, demand, is the uh, which uh, which uh, is uh, is something that affects the economy. It's the supply side of the situation cannot be affected from Israel. So, at the back, truth of the matter is that our politicians can't do anything to offset it. So, right now. Even though prices are rising in Israel, they're rising at a much lower rate than in other Western economies. So and compared to those other Western nations, Israel remains fairly stable, and that's a good sign. The next subject, I'm recording this program on uh, Sunday afternoon. But this coming Wednesday, U.S. President Biden will land in Israel on his first trip to the country as president. Uh, So there are several problems that uh, because two unprecedented political concessions are going to occur with Biden's visit. First is Israel's consent to Palestinian Authority representation at the Allenby crossing with Jordan. And that's where the president's going to come and tacit consent, and perhaps even encouragement by Prime Minister Lapid for Biden's visit to symbolic Palestinian Authority institutions in East Jerusalem. These concessions, particularly visiting a Palestinian Authority institution in East Jerusalem, may cost Israel heavily for years to come. And Biden's going to meet with other people he's going to go to Saudi Arabia and other Arab countries. His visit comes at a particularly bad moment for israel. the Knesset recently dispersed Israel's at the beginning of a fifth election cycle in three and a half years, and Israel's prime minister, who's really a transitional prime minister, really doesn't have a solid political experience uh, and uh, that's not good. The uh, there there was U.S. administrations pressuring Israel for political concessions that generally come along with a president's visit. Now the question is, can Israel speak up for its own interest? The uh, U.S. administration obviously recognizes the weakness of our government was only transitional, and uh, it appears according to the news reports that the american teams that have already arrived in the country requesting compromises from israel that they never would have dared to ask if israel had a strong government particularly a right-wing government the it turns out that lapid our now temporary prime minister is willing to surrender to too many requests simply to please biden Uh, an american president has never visited east jerusalem before Neither George Bush, George, uh, either either George Bush Sr. or Jr., nor Bill Clinton nor Donald Trump, nor not even Barack Obama. They never visited East Jerusalem. The symbolic nature of this visit has been created to pave the way for the U.S. administration to challenge Israel's sovereignty over Jerusalem, and that is bad. Lapid is the caretaker prime minister, and he may be giving them the green light, but he has no authority to allow such a maneuver to take place. Now, a lot of diplomatic delegations came to visit Israel, including two UN secretaries. There always was a desire to include a tour of the Palestinian Authority in East Jerusalem. Despite many requests to date, This has never happened. Israel has always known how to manage these in a quiet, decisive manner. The question is, will our Prime Minister allow the U.S. President to visit East Jerusalem? Time will tell. Thanks for listening.
2: Be smart, listen to Israel News Talk Radio in the background while you work and get the latest news and commentary from Israel. Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel.
0: You're listening to The Jay Shapiro Show.
1: Hi, you're back with Jay Shapiro. Uh, I want to start this segment of the program with what I like to call Under the Radar. These are items not related to each other, which add color and define what's happening in Israel and the Jewish world in general. These items are not related to each other, but I hope that the listeners will find them of interest. The first has to do with the visit of the American president to Israel and what can be defined as the safest place in Jerusalem which means the King David Hotel, which is about a 10-minute walk from where I live. He's, he stayed. Uh, my program is going to be on Sunday, and the president's visit is already over, but I'm recording this program on Tuesday. He's expected tomorrow on Wednesday. He's staying, or he will be staying, in what's reputed to be the safest hotel not only in Jerusalem, not only in Israel, but probably the safest hotel in the world. It's the legendary King David Hotel, which was built about 100 years ago. When the British were here, it was the headquarters of the British government here in Jerusalem. And a matter of fact, there's a famous story that it was blown up by the Jewish underground which is one of the reasons the British left here. At any rate, various presidents have stayed here, including Richard Nixon, Jimmy Carter, both George Bush's, the father and son, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, and Donald Trump. They've all stayed at the King David on King David Street here in Jerusalem, and it's recently uh, been uh, renovated. By the way, Biden has stayed here before uh, when he was uh, the vice president. Despite the uh, renovations which they've undergone, things have not changed too much since former President Donald Trump came to Jerusalem back in May of 2018. At that time, he was here for the ceremonial transfer of the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem. King David Street, outside the hotel, we sealed off to traffic other than official cars and police escorts. Already today, a recording on Tuesday, there are signs all over this area saying essentially no parking particularly to the people who live there who generally park in the street, so they have to find other places. Not convenient, but that's what you have to do. The only thing that will travel here will be official cars and police escorts. As a matter of fact, the president will land at what's called the uh, the Tachna Rishona, the first station, which used to be a railroad uh terminal but now it's a combination amusement park restaurant and it's a nice place to go with your family but it has a huge traffic uh area a huge parking area it's all going to be given over to the uh, president and the president as other presidents have done in the past will visit our president which means he'll drive from the first station to the president's residence, which means he'll drive up Jabotinsky Street, which is where I live. And when Trump was here, when I stuck my nose out of the house, I was chased back by border police. Already today, which is Tuesday, they have set up uh, temporary toilets for use of the uh, Army and the Border Patrol Who will be covering this area? King, as I said, the King David Street, the whole area will be sealed off. Bus routes have been diverted from King David Street, and security will be as tight as a drum. Regardless of the fact that Israel suffers a serious shortage of policemen, police in vast numbers will be deployed along the routes of which the president will travel. And of course, beside Israeli uh, sentries and guards, who will have his own American security detail. The Incidentally, the King David's presidential suites are impervious to bullets, impervious to bombs and impervious to poison gas, and can even, believe it or not, withstand the collapse of the entire King David Hotel. The presidential suites have independent air conditioning, case of a gas attack, and are built to withstand a rocket-propelled grenade. Uh, The president uh, the runs the hotel mentioned in an interview that there are, in fact, three presidential suites, the average price of which now was around $5,700 per night, and the president would have his own private elevator. He also said that despite all the safety factors, the U.S. team brought a bulletproof glass to place in front of the windows. So, turns out that both the American and the Israeli taxpayer are footing the bill, so the president's visit is going to cost me also. Uh, the next item, which is not related to the previous one, what I found of tremendous interest, is that the Arab airlines are going to show a film about the Porto Inquisition. Now, what's that about? the uh, there's a movie called 1618. It tells a historical story in a very moving and empathetic way, allowing viewers to go back 400 years for a short while and try to feel what life was like in those days, especially for the Jews of Porto, Spain, who were persecuted for no fault of their own except being Jewish. 1618 is a a historical film based on a true story. In 1618, a representative of the Portuguese Inquisition came to visit the city of Porto in northern Portugal. Portugal, right, not Spain. More than a century earlier, a brutal, brutal Inquisition was active in that city that forced the Jews living there at that time to flee the country or convert to Christianity. Those who remained in Porto and converted were called the new Christians, but suspicions against them arose and their hidden customs never really disappeared. As part of that visit, the Inquisition's representative ordered the imprisonment of more than a hundred new Christians a move that intimidated the city's residents and as a result led to the mass flight of these new Christians and the almost complete destruction of the city's economy. The film describes in detail how those new Christians were forced to convert and how they lived. The movie was filmed against the backdrop of medieval buildings in Porto, still existing, They're similar to the original ancient buildings and in the movie outlines the dynamics of the new Christian community in the city, subordination to the church, participation in weekly mass ceremonies, ignorance of Jewish sources as a result of more than a century without synagogues and holy books, the almost complete absence of Jewish artifacts and prayers, and the two surviving Hebrew words were the word for God and the word for Gentile. The film has already won a long list of awards at various film festivals, uh, The um, and also in Spain as well as other places in Europe. The film was released in September and launched at a festive premiere to be held indeed in the city of Porto. Now, why am I telling you all this? Because, and this is the bottom line that I think is, to me, fantastically interesting. This film, airlines from Arab countries have purchased the right to screen this film, which is called 1618 which depicts the Inquisition's visit to the city of Porto, Portugal, 120 years after old regions Jews were forced to convert or fleet to other countries. So among the airlines that have acquired the rights and will screen the film to their passengers are, and here's the list, which is, I think is really interesting, the list of uh, airlines who have essentially will screen the film are Qatar Airways, Iraqi Airways, Kuwait, Air, Kuwait Airways, e- Egypt Air, Middle East Airlines, which is the Lebanese airline, and Syrian Airlines, and a few others. That's what's interesting about this movie. It will be shown on airlines from Arab countries, something we could not have dreamed about even five years ago. But I found it of tremendous interest, and that's why I related this to the listeners. The next item has, is related to tourism in Israel. About four months after the coronavirus restrictions limited entry into Israel, these uh, limitations were lifted on March 1st. The country's one millionth visitor in 2022 arrived at Ben Gurion Airport Last Sunday and she was greeted by tourism minister and tourism ministry representatives. The honored tourist was Melinda De Soya Lee Marcello, who hails from the United Arab Emirates. She arrived earlier than was expected as tourist number one million. So uh, the uh, representative of the uh, tourism uh, department said, at first we thought and hoped that the president of the United States would be the millionth tourist, but once again he has been beaten here. Uh, Last year, Israel's skies were closed. There were corona restrictions. All kinds of new variants emerged and serious concerns were about incoming tourism. Uh, But despite the situation, they worked hard to open up the industry, and the the tourism industry has come back to life despite all the challenges. Keep in mind that Israel is a country that really depends a lot on uh, tourism. We benefit greatly from the steady spending of sightseers. According to the Tourism Ministry, there were two almost 250,000 tourists in June 2022, just now, 33% less than a record set in June 2019. So based on the recovery trend in incoming tourism, expected up to 2 million tourists will live, arrive in Israel um, by the end of the year. By the way, it's unknown what number of visitor President Biden was during his visit, but um, that's the way it is. The, there have been pessimistic forecasts that tourism has returned to Israel. A million tourists inject money into the Israeli economy. They create job opportunities throughout the country for both Jews and Arabs, by the way. A lot of the uh, re- restaurant workers here in Jerusalem are Arabs. By the way, you know, tourism is really important to Israel, and... uh the tourism ministry announced last month that it was launching an initiative to develop the country's tourism infrastructure. They're going to spend 300 million Israeli uh, shekels, which is uh, about a, a, million, a little over a million dollars, inviting local authorities and public bodies to admit requests for assistance. That They should come up with projects that will contribute to tourism. So, uh, not only they want to increase tourism, not only uh, uh, incoming from outside the country, but also domestic tourism. Tourism is a very important um, input of money for Israel, and they really want to upgrade the hotels and the various areas where tourists go to make sure that it's inviting. So, that's good news. The next item I found on the very, very inside of a local newspaper, way on the back pages, but it says something about the United States, and I felt that it's something that should be of interest to the listeners. The United States Supreme Court, as we all know, made a decision in June to overturn the 1973 Roe Ro- v. Wade case that legalized abortion nationwide. Now, the test came up uh, with a Supreme Court decision which overturned the uh, Roe v. Wade, and there's all kind of... Uh, uh, things taking place in the United States, like protests, parades, all kind of stuff. But what's interesting, I found in this article that some students, because of the overturning of Roe v.ersus Wade, some students are rethinking their higher education plans as the various states rush to ban or curtail abortion. They interviewed a bunch of college advisors and students across the country. I don't know who did the interview. It doesn't say, but apparently it was a um, a reputable uh, organization. Uh, While it's long been the case that some students hesitated to attend schools in places with different political leanings than their own, The recent moves by conservative states on issues like abortion and lesbian and gay, bisexual, and transgender rights have deepened the country's polarization. That's what's interesting. For example some students the restriction raise fears they won't be able to get an abortion if they need one or that they will face discrimination for gender differences Others said they worried about facing racial prejudice or being politically ostracized. A whole bunch. Of, and this is interesting how people have decided they're not going, young people have decided that they're not going to go to colleges in certain states because they can't get an abortion there, which says something about their their non-student uh, activities when they go to college. So it's too soon to determine whether such concerns will affect admissions in a really measurable way. And evidence from other recent divisive state laws suggests there may be little impact. But in the weight of Rose Overturn, college counselors said abortion has figured prominently in many conversations with clients. As a matter of fact, many students have not de- have decided not to go to the school they originally wanted to because the school is in a state which will not allow abortions. A a counselor with a, uh, a an admissions group in Massachusetts said that students that they work with have told them they're taking some top schools uh, in Texas and Florida and Tennessee off their application lists. Uh, a student who's entering her senior year Uh, at Eastern Tech High School in Maryland, in other words, a student is going to graduate in a year, had planned to apply for her parents' alma mater, Washington University, which is in St. Louis. However, the student feels that the state enacted a law effectively banning abortion, and now I uh, will no longer apply to a school in that state. So, uh, they, and Washington University, by the way, was turned to make a comment. But the uh, university leaders acknowledged the fears and frustration felt by some after the court ruling. And a lot of other uh, colleges didn't respond to requests for comment. So here you have students in the United States who are not going to a particular school because they will not be able to get an abortion in the state where that school exists. And that says something about the values of students and what they consider important to them when they go to college. And that says something really, in my mind, negative about American students. That's a story unto itself. I'll be back after the break.
0: Israel News Talk Radio, straight talk from Israel.
3: Hi, everyone. This is Andrea Simento from Jerusalem inviting you to drop everything and join me on my show, Pull Up a Chair. We'll visit this week's quirky stories, meet fabulous guests, and discover my Israel. Together, we'll laugh, shout, and explain the topics that make us say, Hey, we've got to talk about that. So get comfortable and pull up a chair with me, Andrea Simento, every Thursday on Israel News Talk Radio.
0: You're listening to the Jay Shapiro Show. Hello again,
1: this is Jay Shapiro. Thanks for listening. Uh, this week, the uh, President of the United States is visiting Israel, and I am recording his program before his arrival. The program will be uh, broadcast after his arrival, but I have to say is rather general. But before I do, I want to talk about another subject which has become very prominent, and that's the BDS. I want to ask a question. Actually, there is a question to be asked. Why does the Palestinian cause get so much attention when there are much more compelling causes around the world. I could name a few that I think most people know, the Kurds, the Uyghurs in China, and other stateless and oppressed people. There are more demonstrations on university campuses against Israel than against all the other countries that are essentially persecuting minorities. Could be Russia, China, Iran, even Belarus. Question is, why does Israel get the headlines? The answer has little to do with the Palestinians really, and everything to do with Israel. Why? Because Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people. It is a political manifestation. Of international anti Semitism. That is what attacks on Israel are. They are nothing more than anti Semitism. It is only because the nation accused of oppressing Palestinians is Israel. The world doesn't really care about the Palestinians any more than they care about the Kurds and the Uyghurs and all the other stateless. The problem that we have. Is that the Palestinians are opposed to Israel? It has little to do with the merits and everything to do with anti Semitism. It calls itself a fancy name, anti Zionism, but is only a cover for anti Jewish bigotry. And I'll give you an example the reason. Uh, I like Ben and Jerry's ice cream, in particular something, the Cherry, Cherry Garcia. That's really my favorite ice cream. But there was a decision by Ben and Jerry's, whose owner, former owners, the founders of the company, are Jewish. They sold the company to an international group, and they decided to boycott parts of Israel uh, within what's called the Green Lime, Uh, they will sell to countries with far greater abuses occur. In other words, the Ben and Jerry says, we will continue to sell in Israel, we will not sell in that part of Palestine, if you will, west of the Jordan River, that was taken over by Israel in the Six-Day War back in 1967. So, When asked why Ben and Jerry's limits their boycott only to Israel, even though there are many other countries that persecute minorities, the founders admitted that they had no idea whatsoever. I saw the interview on television, and I thought it was kind of embarrassing. So the question is, who's leading the crowd crowd of anti-Semitic bigots? The movement to single out the nation state of the Jews for boycott is known as BDS. It was originated by a Palestinian radical named Omar Barghoudi, who, if I'm not mistaken, is in jail on seven life sentences for murder. He does not hide the fact that his goal is the destruction of Israel. Now, you can ask yourself, do the Palestinians deserve a state? The answer is, I don't know. I really don't. But they certainly there's, there's, there's no more so than the Kurds and other stateless people. Why no more so? Because Palestinians are trying very much to destroy the Jewish state, And the Palestinians were offered a state on the vast majority of arable arable land west of the Jordan River. It was part of the United Nations proposed two-state solution back in 1947. The Jews were offered a state on a far smaller area of arable land. The Jews accepted the compromise, so-called two-state solution. The Arabs rejected it and went to war against the Jewish state, trying to destroy it. It was this act of unlawful military aggression that resulted in the Palestinian refugee situation, which they called the Nakba, which means the catastrophe. But it was a self-induced catastrophe. And the truth of the matter is that many current Palestinian leaders and followers fault their predecessors for not accepting a two-state solution 75 years ago. Furthermore, the Palestinians could have had a state in 1948, 1967, 2001, 2005, and 2008. They still preferred no Jewish state to a Palestinian state living in peace with Israel. They could have had a state now if they would negotiate a compromise instead of fomenting terrorism. So I really wonder how many of those who demonstrate against Israel have any idea of this history. The anti Israel claims that the Palestinians have become a central part today of hard left ideology, including in the United States, especially among those who adhere to something called intersectionality. That's a term that came into being in the light in the late nineteen eighties. Essentially it's a term that means if you have any problem you feel you're persecuted then you are in common, you have in common other people who are persecuted, regardless of why they are persecuted. In other words, all the persecuted persecuted people share the fact that they're persecuted and they have to join with each other to, to do away with the persecutors. Intersectionality holds that various forms of of the oppression are all related to this to each other in this worldview a transcended transcendent white male into heterosexual power structure keeps down anybody who is not like them United uniting oppressed groups is called intersectionality it's a complicated philosophy but the bottom line is that if you're persecuted, then you have something in, con- something in common with other persecuted. Therefore, you have to join together no matter how different you are. So the uh, question we have to ask ourselves when there are much more compelling causes around the world. So the, the answer has a little to do with the Palestinians and everything to do with Israel. Because Israel is the nation state of the Jewish people. And to be opposed to Israel for Israel's existence is essentially a manifestation of international anti-Semitism. It's only because the nation accused of oppressing Palestinians is Israel, that's why they have all this anti-Israel stuff. Now, maybe you want to support this Palestinian cause, that's okay, uh, but uh, this is a deeply flawed cause not only does the hard left prioritize the Palestinians, it largely ignores other causes just because Israel is on the other side of the Palestinian issue. It's as simple as that. It has very little, as a matter of fact, it has nothing to do with the merits and everything to do with anti-Semitism. It's called anti-Zionism, but it's only a cover for anti-Jewish bigotry. Now, who is leading the crowd of anti-Semitic bigots? The movement to single out the nation-state of Israel for boycott, known as BDS, was originated by a Palestinian radical named Omar Barghouti, who does not hide the fact that his goal is destruction of Israel and the substitution of Israel by a Palestinian state. In other words, meaning the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. All of current Israel should be destroyed and turned into a Palestinian Palestinian state. They would like the whole area uh, to be ethnically clean of the Jews. The Nazis called it Judenrein. And they claim that the Jews supposedly occupy Muslim and Arab land. And by the way, these supposed occupiers, the Jews, include Jews who are black and brown, they're European, they're Asian, they're African, and they're American. Come to Israel and look at the people walking the streets. They cover every possible person, every possible color. Many are descendants of people who have lived here since before Islam began and certainly before many current so-called Palestinians moved here from Egypt and Syria and Lebanon, the Gulf and North Africa. A lot of people came here starting around the 1890s because they were looking for work and the Zionist movement provided work. The bottom line: Jews are as indigenous to Israel as descendants of immigrants are to America. So, as I said, do do they, uh, Arabs, the Arabs, do the Palestinians deserve a state? I don't. It's not my problem. Uh, I uh, have no opinion. Uh, the when uh, when the when the, uh, when the uh, two-state solution was first proposed in the 1920s and 1930s. The Arabs essentially said, we want more that there should not be a Jewish state than there should be an Arab state. By the way, the leader of the the Arabs at that time was Muhammad Amin al-Husseini, the Mufti of Jerusalem, who allied himself and his people with Nazi Germany during World War II. Al-Husseini spent the war years in Berlin with Hitler, planning to bring the final solution to the Jews of what is now Israel. He was, in the end, declared a Nazi war criminal and he had to escape after the war. Yet, his picture was featured in many Palestinian Arab homes, still is, and he's regarded as a hero and a leader. Despite being on the losing side of the war, the Palestinians were offered a state on the vast majority of land. They simply rejected it, because they would rather not have a state than see the Jews have a state. That is, the, they preferred there should not be a Jewish state. That is the bottom line in their intentions. I really wonder how many people who demonstrate against Israel have any idea of this history, or are they merely serving as useful idiots to those who do know the history, but they want to undo the history because it resulted in a nation state for the Jewish people, and that is what they want to destroy. doesn't really matter. The bottom line is, particularly the hard left, the hard left has an irrational opposition to Israel which is a modern manifestation of the world's oldest and most enduring bigotry, anti-Semitism. And the reason I bring up on, this up on the program today is something we have to really remind ourselves. Uh, if the listeners are uh, interested in a lot of details of, uh, of, the, uh, of the anti-Semitism against Israel, you can find books written by Alan Dershowitz, who's a an uh, emeritus professor at the Harvard Law School, and he um, he written quite a few books, uh, particularly about Israel. And his books are very easy to read. So if you want to get a clear a clear picture of the Arab desire to destroy Israel rather than create its own state, pick up a book by uh, by Dershowitz. You'll find it enlightening and easy to read. Now I want to switch the subject to speak something about Biden's visit to this area. Uh, I'm recording this program before he arrives, but what I have to say I think is fitting even after his arrival. What's happening is that we have a new prime minister uh, who took over. His name is uh, Lapid, and uh, he's he's a politician. And uh, he spoke to Abbas, the head of the Palestinian Authority, Uh, before Biden's visit. Now, what's happening is that our present Prime Minister Lapid is really fighting for center-left votes Uh, here in Israel. He's trying to gather in for the upcoming election the votes in the anti-Netanyahu camp. So, for example, his chances of luring voters from Likud or the Religious Zionist Party are almost nil and he certainly knew that. Uh, and when he made these calls, the center-left, unlike the Likud, a religious Zionist party, has not given up on a diplomatic process with the Palestinians, and does not believe that they shouldn't talk about it. They want to see contact with the Palestinian Authority. It's no coincidence. It's just hours before um, our prime minister called uh, Abbas. It was also visited by the defense secretary. Now, all what this was, was a signal to the center-left voters in Israel that unlike former prime minister Naftali Bennett, who refused to talk or meet with Abbas, they're not opposed. So they're trying to draw a pool of voters, uh, and uh, that, that is their goal. Now, apparently that's Biden's goal, true. Uh, Biden's trip is not something the American voters are very excited about. He's going to do some handshaking. There was a, when Nixon came back, uh, did, did things like that back in 1972, he went to China, he came to the Middle East. The Americans today are not waiting with bated breath for Biden's trip. And they'll probably not follow with much interest or excitement because the U.S. economy is what's on the mind of the Americans. Terrible inflation. There's a Russian war in Ukraine, competition with China. There was a Roe versus Wade overturn decision. Mass shootings taking place seemingly every week. Mer- many Americans can't figure out why Biden's going out to the Middle East. He has enough problems at home that he has to take care of. Also, he's going to Saudi Arabia, which he insulted uh, last year. He said it should be treated like a pariah. Now he's going there to try to make amends. The uh, University of Maryland poll was conducted at the end of June. They asked about the visit, and it showed that only 24% of American public said he approved of Biden's Mideast trip, 25% that they disapproved. And the rest neither approve nor disapprove or don't know that's forty percent, so Biden has found himself in an unusual position of having to just his justify his visit. He said that his the, the main purpose of his ministry's trip was to deepen israel's integration into the region. not quite sure what that means, but the, the trip um, the trip is being used by Biden politically because all the predictions are is that his democratic party is going to lose very very badly in the upcoming election and so he's trying to create something about his trip to the middle east and uh, it's hard it's hard to know whether it'll uh, it'll have any meaning really in the final analysis so uh, his trip is going to happen it might be happening now and uh, i don't think it means anything really it's simply a waste of time and a taxpayer's money and it causes traffic jams in Jerusalem where I live. Uh, Until next time, Jay Shapiro signing off.
0: News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.
2: Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. Just click the orange button at the top of the home page. Log in as yourself or an anonymous guest. And join in on the fun. You'll meet other listeners from all over the world who listen to Israel News Talk Radio. And you can make new friends. Israel News Talk Radio's chat room. It's the closest you can get to being in the studio with us.
3: We love listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Where can you get the inside news on Israel? Israel.